Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm Doug Sweeney here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And we are coming to you again from the comfort of our homes as we continue to weather the COVID-19 storm. Today's conversation is the first in a three-part series on the theme of this year's Beeson Magazine, Being Human. You can find the magazine now on our Beeson website, BeesonDivinity.com, and you can even find audio recordings of some of its key articles, including the one we're about to discuss with a brilliant Beeson faculty member who wrote it, Peter Malish. Kristen, would you please introduce Dr. Malish to our podcast listeners? Today we have on the show the Reverend Dr. Peter Malish. He is Associate Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School, an ordained Lutheran pastor. Uh, Peter is the author of Trinity, Freedom, and Love, an engagement with the theology of Eberhard Jungel. Peter is no um, stranger to the podcast. He actually was on recently um, in December. And so we're grateful to have you back on the show, Peter. Pleasure to be here. Uh, as I mentioned, you were on, you were a guest uh, in December. Why not um, today you give us an update from Corona Quarantine? <laughs> How have you been holding up? What are some lessons that the Lord has been teaching you during these last eight to nine weeks? I think the, the, this extraordinary time, because, it, you know, by all accounts, it has been quite an extraordinary time. Nothing uh, like nothing that we have experienced, I think, in our lifetime has really been the kind of time where I think I've focused even more and thought even more about uh, the meaning of our humanity, because, you know, whatever I say, I, I think I should begin by acknowledging that there are some people at this particular time who have been very profoundly affected in their livelihood and in their humanity. Now, it's been, it hasn't been that drastic for me or for any of us here, I, um, I'm, I'm guessing, but we should begin with, with that recognition. For me, it's been, I would say, a more focused time. The two regular focal, focal points um, have definitely remained. That is my academic work, my teaching, and also my continuing pastoral work, though obviously they have been uh, transformed and uh, we've gone online and we've uh, utilized the phone in my congregation and so on and so forth. There's been a bit of a blessing in this, uh, you know, uh, in all this uh, situation, uh, in the sense that I've had, like I said, more time. Um, I've thought, like I said, about what it means to be human, but I also thought about um, just the ambiguity of technology at this, at this particular time, you know, and what I mean by that is that, is that on the one hand, I was able to be a guest preacher for a colleague and a friend of mine in Montreal, because their services were online as well. So in a sense, that was just an unexpected connection that probably would have required a lot of logistical thinking for me to, to go and preach there otherwise. But even as I sort of am grateful for technology, what comes to mind is uh, Sigmund Freud's phrase that we are uh, prosthetic gods. Uh, you know, it's amazing what we can do, but uh, what we can do technologically, I think, only makes us aware of what's really missing. In, in all this. And I think that's also something that we need to keep in mind, even as we cautiously celebrate technology. 
In terms of my specific work, um, I've been continuing to work on a couple of essays. There's, there's a topic that's interested me ever since I uh, began working on my dissertation, and that is the topic of freedom, human freedom, creation, and freedom within creation, and the meaning of freedom. But also other essays that have become strangely relevant, even though I started working on them before the pandemic, uh, one has to do with loneliness and how loneliness makes us prone to ideology. Uh, and then finally, about the meaning of the church and the meaning of grace, um, especially when it comes to absence and presence. Peter, we've already made reference to the new issue of the Beeson magazine that's out now. Since we have you on the program with us, we want to get theological about this and talk about it in terms of theological anthropology. Uh, I want our listeners to know that you wrote what really is the foundational piece for this issue of the magazine. And so while we have you, we thought we'd uh, get you talking a little bit with our listeners about what you're doing in that piece. Can we begin with just a very basic question, maybe for the uninitiated? What is theological anthropology and why does it matter to Christians? So theological anthropology is theological, that is um, Christian, more specifically, reflection on what it means to be human. Um, there are obviously all kinds of ideas floating around, and they, they're probably as old as humanity or human thinking itself. But there's a specifically theological point of view uh, that deals with uh, the meaning of being human. Now, um, in terms of the importance of theological anthropology, I mean, uh, we could start with the Bible itself. Uh, if you were to ask a person in the street, what's the Bible about? They would obviously say, well, it's a, it's a book about God. Well, that's true, but that's only partially true, because the Bible is really a witness, if you like, to the outworking of God's decision to be the kind of God he is, but not just for himself, but for others. The Bible is an outworking of God's decision to be God also in the sense of being creator for creation, and within creation to have this specific relationship with a creature that is us, that was brought forth to image God, to reflect God. And in that sense, you might say theological anthropology is really one of the central themes in the Bible right after God. So the Bible tells us about God, but it also tells us about ourselves. And we might even um, say it more strongly, that the Bible not only tells us about ourselves, but as we read it, as it is read to us, as the gospel is proclaimed to us, as the law is proclaimed to us before the gospel, the Bible not only tells us about ourselves, but it also addresses us about ourselves. It sort of asks us the kind of question, who are you and are you as you should be? Um, so uh, so that's, the, that's, the, that's the reason, the theological reason, if you like, that we should deal with theological anthropology and really should reflect on some of the themes of uh, theological anthropology, which I guess we'll get to in, in just a moment. But I also want to add to this that there is um, also quite a proliferation, as I said just a moment ago, of all kinds of other views about what it means to be human or uh, perhaps all kinds of other confusions about what it means to be human. We we live in a... In a um, in a particular cultural moment, especially in the West, where I think there is a crisis of our identity as uh, as the human race, um, and I and let me let me say a little bit about that, um, because on the one hand, we know a lot about ourselves. Paradoxically, that knowledge about ourselves 
makes us aware even more so of our insignificance in the large scale of the cosmos. We are really very fragile being inhabiting um, some sort of peripheral, peripheral planet in a nondescript galaxy. Um, so who exactly are we? Uh, on the one hand, the creatures that can embrace with their minds the entirety of the cosmos, but on the other hand, who are so insignificant in its, its larger scale, both when it comes to space and when it comes to time. There are also other um, variations on this sort of ambiguity of what it means um, to be human in, in our particular cultural moment, because uh, we could also look at our relationship to the environment. One hand, we are part of our environment. On the other hand, we can rise above our environment. And, and at this particular moment, we discover in ourselves the potential both to preserve our world, but also to exploit and to destroy it. Uh, we can be both a blessing to the earth, and we can also be probably one of its worst parasites, to put it pretty drastically. Um, so who exactly are we? And then when we, when we think about our uniqueness, this is perhaps uh, the third uh, variation on this theme of ambiguity and insignificance. When we think about our uniqueness and the fact that so many areas that we thought were unique to us, including calculation, thinking, memory, and so on, uh, not to mention um, simply physical skills, can, can be done by technology. So who exactly are we if perhaps what we once considered unique is no longer so unique to us? So the, the question that is very often raised in the kind of broader philosophical discourse is not just what exactly are we, but perhaps should we even want to, uh, or should we perhaps want to transcend our humanity altogether? There is this intellectual current called transhumanism that basically says we are helplessly entangled in ambiguity, but we can make something more of ourselves if we if we transcend our humanity. So, so this is the second reason why I think Christians need to deal with anthropology because I think we have some very good responses to the current uh, predicament and the current crisis. And we need to mine our biblical and theological anthropology for precisely the kind of insights um, that would address our situation. I find this topic um, fascinating for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that when you look at Christian nonfiction books and um, even outside of Christianity, it seems like we're obsessed with the you, <laughs> being your best self or all, all the self-help books. And so we seem to at least produce a lot of books that suggest that we know a lot about who we are. Yet in your article, you suggest that for all of its advancements and promises, that modernity has not brought us any closer to a, an understanding of what it means to be human. And I just wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. That's actually correct. And, and interestingly enough, I would even say that modernity has sort of alienated us from the answer that we once had. Now, the answer might have become somewhat antiquated. We need to certainly think through it and continue to think to, to mine its potential. But perhaps at one point when we knew less about ourselves, it was clearer to us what we were as uh, human beings. So, but to speak to your question, uh, Kristen, what are sort of the, the symptoms of modernity in relation to uh, its thinking about humanity? I think on the one hand, we have the set of ambiguities that I've just named. 
that we are in a in a kind of a crisis not knowing quite who we are or discovering within ourselves sort of potential for sort of going in two opposite directions if you like but i think uh there is more that can be said to that um apart from the ambiguities um it's the fact that we actually know a lot about ourselves you know we have a whole range of sciences and those sciences are also in many ways um uh, sort of sciences about us. I mean, when we talk about chemistry, we can talk about the chemistry of the human organism, right? Um, we have all kinds of biomedical sciences. We have linguistics that gives us insight into, into language and its inner workings. We have psychology and cu cultural anthropology, all the way to uh, the philosophy of mind and, and, and even the study of artificial intelligence. So there is a lot of disciplines that collectively give us insight into various aspects of human being or what Karl Barth called, what Karl Barth called uh, phenomena of the human. But I would, um, I would venture uh, saying that, uh, that for all the specific insights, we have perhaps lost sight of who we are as human beings. We have lost sight of the fundamental question and the, the, the just the um, kaleidoscopic variety insights do not uh, collectively add up to any sort of answer to the question, but what does it mean to be human? So that's sort of where we are in modernity in terms of our scientific achievement. But then you can also look at, at philosophy and all the various proposals that have been put forth, not just in modernity, but uh, some of them have their roots in, in antiquity. And they too seem to point out to certain um, kind of ambiguities or at least seem to go in two different directions, if you if you like. I can just give you a, a brief sampling of, of just the variety of views that's there. We can divide the philosophical views available of what it means to be human that emphasize self-mastery and self-possession and views that point to the fact that perhaps we are not as available to ourselves as we think and that we are not our own. So in the first category, the category of self-mastery and self-possession, we have views that stem from the philosophy of Aristotle, or at least uh, he would be one of the, the very first exponents of those kind of views. Aristotle says that we are uh, beings with reason and that the task of reason is to, in many ways, bring the passions of the body and the passions of the lower soul under control, to bring the passions of the body and desires under control. And in this way, we become creatures of virtue. Now, in modernity, that becomes refracted into just a host of other possible positions that also emphasize self-mastery. We have the view, for example, of Descartes, who says that a human is a thinking thing, that I own my thinking, and that's sort of what makes me, that's what makes me into who I am. Uh, we have the view of Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, who says that I am the kind of being, as a human being, who can give a law to himself. I can give a law to myself in such a way that by giving this law to myself, I will treat others not as means to an end, but rather as creatures with inherent worth and dignity, and that I must therefore do my duty and give a law to myself. In the in the second category, just to, to mention that, because I, uh, you know, we are getting into the, the theological view that we want to recover, and that that is just so essential. But I think before we get to that theological view, it's good to emphasize just how many different positions we have on the table, and how insightful they in many ways are, and yet how fragmentary 
and in many ways, like I said, conflicted. So in the, in the category that somehow humans are not just purely available to themselves, that we are not our own, perhaps the, you know, the earliest exponent of that kind of view would be Plato, who says we carry within ourselves a spark of eternity, and therefore our destiny is not in this world, in this body, but rather to sort of be recalled out of the world and 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 to uh, to merge with eternity. But in modernity, we have a range of other views that that emphasize something similar. To go back to Sigmund Freud again, who is in many ways, you know, a very controversial thinker, but but not without his own insight. I mean, Freud says that we are sort of these beings who are mysteriously driven, on the one hand, by love. And on the other hand, by aggression and death, that ultimately we are hidden from ourselves. We don't quite know who we are. You have people like Kierkegaard in this category who says that um, we are the kind of beings who are a burden to ourselves. And Kierkegaard then asks the question, are we actually sort of able to carry the burden of ourselves? Uh, and perhaps the, the last person to mention here is uh, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, who says, we are the kind of beings who find themselves simply thrown into the world. Uh, and we must rise to the occasion, um, rise to the fact that our time is finite and make the most of it. So that sort of gives you, uh, you know, a sense of where modernity is on this issue. Uh, again, a lot of insight, really not a good answer in to, to who we are kind of fundamentally as human beings. And if I may just say one more thing, there is a kind of a sub-question that belongs under this category as well. And it's, this is an important question, especially in medical ethics, and it has to do with personhood. So not just what it means to be human, but what it means to be a person. There are a lot of views on the subject, and many of them have, uh, if not all of them, have very dangerous byproducts or uh, they entail uh, very dangerous consequences. So, for example, should we define the person on the basis of what the person has achieved? But then that would exclude those who haven't achieved anything yet, the unborn and children, but also those who can no longer achieve, the elderly. Is a person simply a rational creature, the way we see it in those views that emphasize self-mastery? But then what do we do with those who are disabled, especially mentally disabled, right? So the conversation keeps going on, and it's certainly an interesting conversation. Again, let me emphasize it's an insightful conversation. But we as Christians should both gain from the insight that is given us, but also remember and never surrender the, uh, the fact that we have a perspective on what it means to be human that can be very viably and should be brought to the table. I was excited to see Peter as a church history teacher that you made very good use of Gregory of Nazianzus and of Martin Luther in developing your argument. Uh, what do you want our listeners to understand about their significance for the way we think about what it means to be human? Gregory, the uh, uh, the church father who died in the in the fourth century, at the end of the fourth century, he's not specifically preoccupied with humanity as such, but he uses this argument about being, um, about what a human being is to challenge some philosophers and some Christian thinkers in his own day who think that, um, you know, the, the, the theology, the knowledge of God can be made into a science, that they can sort of draw all kinds of conclusions about God. And, and Gregory says, well, uh, before, you, before you start sort of drawing all kinds of inferences about what God is like and making all kinds of claims, 
uh, shouldn't you perhaps exercise a little bit of modesty? I mean, because to presume that you can know everything about God entails that somehow you know everything about all kinds of lesser realities, such as the world, and about being human. And then Gregory, as he issues that challenge, says, there's just so much we don't know about ourselves. So, you know, before you before you foolishly, uh, you know, uh, barge into God's mysteries, um, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about you know what it means to be human. Let's talk a little bit about the the, the phenomena of the human, right? He says, uh, and I quote this in my article that there are many facts about rest in sleep, the mystery of sleep, about our imagination, um, about memory, about recollection, about calculation, about anger, uh, why it wells up in us. Something that, uh, like I said, Freud then uh, was really puzzled by. There's all kinds of mysteries of desire. Where does it come from? Do we find it in ourselves and so on and so forth? So I think, you know, to, to use Gregory for our purposes here, what he teaches us is, first of all, a sense of wonder that he call, he refers to, hum, to humans as this little world called man. We are this little cosmos, if you like. The, the deeper you go into the human being, perhaps the more in awe you will be, uh, the more in wonder you will be. But I think he also teaches us a certain kind of modesty. He says, we are only human. There's just so much that we don't understand even about ourselves. So wonder and modesty. We are not gods. There's a lot of stuff about the world and about us that we don't understand. So let's be honest with ourselves. And that's, that's, a, that's sort of what I take to be Gregory's charge. And then what I see Martin Luther as doing is in a sense materially fleshing that out. If we are modest and in wonder about ourselves, why should, why should that be our attitude? And Luther makes a very insightful observation. He says that to be justified is not just to be saved. Justified is not just to be a believer, but to be justified is really to be a human being. Um, that in reality, the human being, in uh, his or her entire wonder and insignificance, um, is a creature of the Creator. That it's God who makes sense of the person. And here Luther echoes, I believe, um, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 8, which I also quote in my article, what is man that thou art mindful of him, um, where the definition of the human really sort of comes from God's regard, God's mindfulness, God's commitment to this creature um, that we are. So uh, justification as something that defines us in the core of our being, divine justification, is, uh, is I think the beginning of the theological answer. Often when we talk about our humanity, we begin with uh, Genesis, that we were made in the image of God. Do you understand that phrase, in the image of God? So the, the phrase has obviously a, a long history, and there have been all kinds of views that have been put forth, uh, some of which I think are perhaps too beholden to the kind of view that I ident identified earlier that I associated with Aristotle and that becomes kind of the signature view of modernity, that the image of God is in some sense my thinking, my rationality. But when I, when I read Genesis, uh, especially Genesis 1 and 2, what jumps at me is really the character of God, the character of God who, in a very orderly way, brings everything into being and then bestows that gift on the creature that within everything is to hold a special status. God gives to the man and the woman everything that he has made 
with the exception of one tree, as a token of his love to work on and really to use in the same way as God has used it towards them. So just as God gives everything to the man and the woman to express his love and regard, they, because they are human and they're not created out of nothing, they are to repeat that movement towards each other. I think that's why Adam needs a helper, because for Adam to be in the image of God, he can only repeat what God has done if there is a helper, if there is another human being uh, beside him. So humans are to use God's gift of creation, also then express their mutual regard and love for each other. And, you know, I like to use the phrase that we do in a human way what God does in a divine way. Um, and that really applies also to justification, just as God justifies us, that is, makes sense of us, uh, gives us a place uh, where we belong that is ours. So we also, in some sense, call each other into being. Now, not in, uh, in a literal sense, but the analogy I often give to my students is that if you go to a party and you don't know anybody, you feel like you don't belong, like you're out of place. And then somebody addresses you, just as God addresses the man and the woman. Somebody says hello, and suddenly you feel like you actually have a place, like you belong. You've been justified. Again, we do in a human way what God does in a divine way. We have this capacity to go beyond ourselves because God is all for us. We have this capacity to go beyond ourselves, to also then be for others and to give ourselves to others in such a way that we too call them into being, bring them into our little worlds, if you um, if you like. So, so to me, the image of God lies less in any kind of faculty, um, such as rationality, and it really lies in sort of how we exist as human beings or how we were meant to exist as human beings. What about Christology? Peter, and it's bearing on all of this. Is this something we can handle in a in a brief way on a podcast? Of course, we've been created by God in the image of God, but the people of faith have have also been remade in Jesus Christ. What what does that have to do with the way we should be thinking now about what it means for us to be human? I think um, what we really discover in Christ is is the is the renewal of the image of God. I mean, we must be honest with ourselves here. We have fallen short of the image of God. We don't exist the way we were created to exist. We may refer to it as sin, we may refer to it as as the fall, but we certainly are not the way we were meant to be. So I think when we look at Christ, we see in Christ the new Adam. He is he is the human image of God. He is that kind of human who in a sense finishes off and rounds off our own existence. I think that's that's very important because uh, whereas Adam chose to give heed to the serpent's words that God is not trustworthy, and therefore that he should sort of claim godhood for himself. Jesus Christ lives his entire life in such a way that he commits himself repeatedly to the Father. And that begins with, uh, with his encounter with Satan in the desert at the beginning of his ministry. And that goes all the way to Gethsemane and the cross where Christ says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Um, so Adam did not live his life in such a way that with his entire life and throughout his entire life, he honored God and was in the image of God. But Christ, in that sense, really lives an entire human life that is a life of entrusting himself to the Father and therefore 
um, having the ability to be there for others, uh, even the undesirable others. So, uh, so what we see in Christ is really, like I said, the renewal of the image of God and the possibility of claiming that image for ourselves. You know, uh, when, when Luther says, you know, we should look to Christ and look to what he has done as if we had done it ourselves because he, he does it for us. He doesn't do it simply for himself. I think there's a way sort of, of paraphrasing Luther here and saying we should look to Christ's entire life as a God honoring life. Claim it for ourselves because he has lived it for us as if we had lived it ourselves. And that's why um, I think that's what the New Testament means by us being in Christ or the Christian community being described as, as the body of Christ. We are to find ourselves in Christ, to find our identity in the well-lived human life that he has given to us and that he still gives to us. You mentioned in your article that we can dehumanize ourselves and others. And I wonder if you would just say a quick word about that, how we might dehumanize one another and maybe a word of caution that you would like to say about that. It's kind of interesting because we are these beings that that exist in relation to ourselves. So we spent um, uh, the first half of this conversation talking about how we try to grasp ourselves by our understanding. But there's also um, a sense in which in our entire lives, we try to grasp ourselves. We try to arrive at ourselves. We try to be, you know, the, 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 the uh, catchword today is authentic. Uh, and there's all kinds of theories of sort of what it means to be authentically human or to have your own personal um, authenticity. But the, the upshot of all this is that we can miss ourselves. And, uh, and that's what the Bible calls sin. That's what the Christian tradition calls um, sin, because sin is not just a certain action is somehow wrong. Uh, more fundamentally, um, sin compromises our very being. Uh, it affects us in the core of our being. We sin because we are sinners, um, rather than uh, the other way around. Something has happened in the core of our being that has that has affected us. And the definition I, I um, of, of the fall that I tend to go back to is the definition that uh, Karl Barth gave in his commentary on Romans, where he interprets what goes on between the serpent and Eve and then Adam as the man and the woman trying to be by themselves what they could only be with God. When we try to be by ourselves what we can only be with God, we paradoxically, Bart notes, become less. Um, uh, it's not that we uh, we somehow remain neutrally human. We actually we actually sort of miss our humanity. We we miss our um, determination, if you if you like. And um, so uh, so dehumanization is not um, it's not simply a moralistic category. It's a it's a it's a much bigger category that has to do with our entire being that asks about uh, uh, you know how we how we exist. And and there are there are certain aspects of it that I think we can note. One is if the serpent says that God is not trustworthy and uh, Adam gives credence to the serpent, then then it means that Adam must sort of try to make something of himself, right? And and we we live with this sort of in this sort of Adamic condition of sin. We become preoccupied with the self because we have rejected God's goodness for us and the kind of place 
where we were justified by God, we gave credence to the lie that we can be gods knowing good and evil on our own. So that puts us in a, in a, in a kind of an impossible position because maybe that's a, a good way of diagnosing some of the, the confusion that we constantly experience in trying to think of our humanity in philosophical terms is that we are caught up in this, in this um, dynamic between trying to be both creator and material in relation to ourselves. And uh, so, so all of our relationships to each other, to the world, and so on and so forth become um, contaminated or become subsumed under this preoccupation with the self. And, and I, I want to just note here that, that for, for Luther and Calvin, that's the definition of sin, being turned in on yourself, subsuming or absorbing everything into your self-relation in such a way that you become either secure against the world, that is, you've, you've sort of gained an identity that can now uh, no longer be threatened, at least so we think, or we try to secure the world for ourselves in such a way that we, we remake the world in our own image so it won't threaten us and uh, the kind of identity we want to um, we want to give to ourselves, but I think what's what's really interesting here. So so the first paradox is this paradox of of wanting to be both creator and creature in relation to ourselves, creator and material. But the second paradox that even as we try to make something of ourselves to give ourselves an identity, we are still mysteriously these these creatures that require justification from the outside. We in many ways want. What we make of ourselves to be sort of given the thumbs up, to be approved, to be recognized by others, and so on and so forth. And I, and I think that then entangles us in all kinds of uh, patterns of, uh, as I say in my article, of mistrust, competition for recognition, for example, patterns of mutual judgment, putting each other down, blame, finger pointing. Uh, and we already see that in the opening chapters of, of Genesis as well. And all of that, all of that, these specific sins, are really then a manifestation of the more fundamental sin that we do not rest our being in God, that we don't trust that God is the justifier of us, and that we must make something of ourselves and have that uh, recognized and acknowledged by others. That is so true. Well, we're about out of time, Peter, but I think we'd be remiss if we did not make any reference at all to the fact that living through a major uh, pandemic these days. Any uh, concluding words? help, edification uh, for our listeners uh, based on your own thinking uh, through the pandemic about theological anthropology? I mean, something that I have emphasized to my congregation um, is, um, again, our identity is the body of Christ, that we rest in God. God has already made more of us than we could ever make of ourselves. Um, that's our destiny, divine justification. Christ is uh, Christ is the giver of our identity. We are in Christ. And therefore, we have this rich togetherness that we were meant for. Because if God is all for us, we can actually give our works away to the neighbor. I think the challenge of the pandemic has been uh, just the fact that the neighbor is not visibly present to us. Um, that we can't often do the kind of works. We yearn for togetherness. And I think here we need to remember that um, that the church has always had resources that can make the absent present. And one of those resources is prayer. Um, this is the time to pray for each other. This is also the time to pray with each other, perhaps by calling them and letting them know that we, that we pray for them. That even as we are absent in the body, uh, it's something that is that we already see in you know in the epistles of Paul, 
in a, in a very different kind of context, right? We are nonetheless present to each other um, precisely by remembering, by being freed from preoccupation with the self into remembering the neighbor um, and each other. So that's, that I think is one aspect of, of how we can sort of deal with this pandemic, um, that even in absence, we can cultivate a certain kind of presence and togetherness. And the, the, the second aspect uh, has to do with sort of what it means to be a person. Again, that, that very convoluted and controversial question um, that, is, that is being endlessly debated uh, in, in philosophy. And I think the question here is not whether somebody is person enough for me to be concerned about them, but rather whether I am a person, whether uh, looking at how God in Christ has been a neighbor and a friend and a person to me. Um, can I really be person enough to cultivate these virtues of remembrance and togetherness, however halting and difficult they might be um, right now? A wonderful question for us to ponder as we conclude. You have been listening to a beloved professor of theology at Beeson Divinity School, Dr. Peter Malish. We are grateful to you, Peter, for being with us today. To our audience members for tuning in. Uh, we're praying for you. We know these are difficult days for you. Uh, we love you, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.